following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. For Yom HaShoah, and just to understand, it's not so simple. It's a pretty, it's a very controversial day. Not everybody um, observes Yom HaShoah. Some of the more, some of the more, um, uh, um, uh, there's some religious people who claim in the month of Nisan, which was Rosh uh, Chodesh was on Sunday, Monday, so we don't have any mourning within the month of Nisan, the Jewish month of Nisan, which is the month of Passover. You're not supposed to do like Kilmales, you don't, uh, a lot of things that are not done during that month. And therefore, some have a different day for Yom HaShoah. Okay, so. Um, uh, basically, so that's what's important to know. But um, because it was Yom HaShoah, so we are giving this class, which basically what I would like to discuss, and there's been many cases, there's even been a movie about it, um, of uh, many of us are children of survivors. Um, uh, my father was a survivor, one of 11 children. Have to sign in. Even if, even if I haven't signed in anyway. You didn't have an attorney. The state wants to know that you were here. In blood. Okay, so... Uh, so the, the, there was a lot of people who, besides, you know, we always think of the Holocaust in numbers, and the six million Jews were lost, and many other gypsies, homosexuals, and, and whoever else was persecuted. But there was also, I mean, not, not to, of course, contrast that with the life that was lost, it was the financial, literally billions of dollars, um, was rooted from Jewish homes and Jewish institutions, Jewish synagogues, um, during, during World War II. Um, by the Nazis. And there are many cases of people who subsequently find, come back and try to look for their belongings and found many of it went, ended up in museums across the world, especially in Europe. Specifically, there's one famous case, the 70 case, which was a case, um, no, sorry, there was a, there's a movie called The Woman in Gold, I believe it's called. It's a good movie, highly recommend it, which is a woman who found, who was in a museum in Austria, she was an American woman, born in Germany, but she, after the war, she was a survivor of the war, she was, I think, 14 when the war broke out. She found, she went to Austria on a museum visit and saw a picture that was hanging in her home um, that her aunt had drawn, I don't know exactly who drew it, a woman in gold, and it was actually in the National Museum in Austria. And she sued the Austrian government um, to retrieve the picture. I don't want to be a spoiler until the end of the movie, but, uh, but uh, the, she did win the case. At the end, after many years fighting the Austrian government, she actually won the case and got back the picture. So there are many, um, but uh, that's only one of many. This is the case, that, uh, the more famous case is known as the Sotheby case. It was a case in 1984 where a guy, an 84-year-old Jewish fellow, came to Sotheby's and offered uh, as an anonymous auction um, literally thousands of books from, from the, it was a reform institution, a rabbinical institution in, in Berlin that uh, he claims that they gave him the books before the war, knowing during when the war broke out after Kristallnacht, knowing that uh, he was leaving, he had a visa to leave the country, and he could smuggle out a lot of books, and he claims they were given to him, um, and he was auctioning them off at the end of his life. Um, he was about to die, he realized there's no more use for them, so Sotheby's were auctioning it, the, the Attorney General of New York at the time, and many Jewish institutions sued to, to block the auction, because they claimed this is stolen material, um, it doesn't belong to him, Stole and, uh, and they sued to block the auction, they lost, in that case they lost, and the auction proceeded, um, but it was a, we'll discuss some other diff different case. Um, so there's many, there's many such stories throughout the ages. We'll talk about um, throughout, and even recently, by the way, this is a new story I just printed out this morning. This is dated May 1st, last week. Um, this is the headlines, an AP story from the Washington Post here, but it was on all over the news. It says, LA judge rules Spanish museum can keep Nazi looted painting. So this was a case, actually, um, federal, I'll just read you part of it. A federal judge in Los Angeles ruled Tuesday that a Spanish museum that acquired a priceless Nazi Nazi looted painting in 1992 is the work's rightful owner and not the survivors of the Jewish woman who surrendered it 80 years ago to escape the Holocaust. So a similar case where this woman, uh, this, it was clear they agreed that this piece of art um, that's in the museum in Spain came from a woman who gave it up while she was being taken away to the camps. Um, but they say that the 
that the right, the owner who sold it to the museum had a right to sell it to them, etc. So this was ruled this just last week. So there's an ongoing situation where you have uh, this um, this collection, by the way, was bought for $350 million. So you're talking about millions of dollars that were literally looted from Jews or Jews that uh, hid it um, when they left. I can tell you a personal story. Um, my father, like as I mentioned, is a survivor. He was one of 11 children. He was the only person who survived. He, um, he had one brother that went to Israel prior to the war, 1931. Hello, hello. Welcome. Hi, Steve. Have a seat. Prior to the war, 1931, he had uh, immigrated to Palestine. He was running away from the Polish army. Has the plate for the man. And uh, he passed the food down. So, um, so basically, he the story of my uncle. Fascinating story. Thank you. Is he, he had another? So he had my father had one more brother. He, again, he was one of eleven. He had one more brother who actually survived the war. He went through all the camps, survived. Six months after the war, he came back to Poland to retrieve <coughs> stuff that he had hidden in his backyard. He had buried stuff in his backyard. They killed him there. Six months, he knocks on the door of the house that used to be his house. The woman answers the door, woman of the house, and she says, "Wait one second. Um, five minutes later, the man in the house comes out and killed him on the spot. What? Killed him? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know. This was, and this is not, not an uncommon story. Many Jews hid uh, before they left. They realized that it was the end, so they hid, they hid um, um, much stuff. And then when they came, uh, when they came back after the war, they were killed. This is just another uh, example of the. As you know, this past year, Poland passed a law where it's illegal to to use the term Polish Holocaust. You can't use the word Pol Polish and Holocaust in the same sentence. You can get arrested in Poland. Um, there's no question, just from my personal experience, uh, my dad told me the Poles were a lot worse than the Germans in uh, giving up Jews um, to the Gestapo and, and, and killing Jews also. When they got the chance, they got the first chance, they killed Jews. So we have in this class uh, a number of survivors and grandchildren survivors also. Not survivors, but uh, Malin's dad was a survivor, right? Anyone else here who has any relatives who were survivors? Yeah, his grandfather. Um, so the so Finkelman name is, is also synonymous with Holocaust remembrance. So it's an important topic to discuss. Um, so in, in any case, that was uh, something that's very clear. Yeah, you chicken. So um, so it's important to understand. Again, we're looking at it. And we're not not to again compare the loss of life to the economic loss. But it's important to understand that even today, this is very relevant, there are literally millions and billions of dollars out there that belong to Jews that are being misappropriated in museums across the world, um, including in U.S. museums and, and many other places. Um, and the question is, uh, who owns that? And can uh, heirs or survivors themselves go ahead and reclaim the property? Go need another chair. Huh? Outside the door. Okay. You're welcome, welcome. Cheerful. You need everyone to scoot over. Yep. Scoot down. Scoot over. Yeah. Scoot down. Scoot over. Scoot down. Scoot down. Scoot down. Put this sentence. Rudy, can you pass this down to the table there? Okay, so um, so so let's begin. Uh, any extra one, um, Patrice? Is that an extra one next to you? Thank you. And the signing is here somewhere. Okay. Oh, Okay, so uh, so so again, so I'm not again. I don't know American law as much as, uh, or very little American law. So I'm going to discuss it mostly from the halakhic perspective. I'm going to try to contrast the American law, some the little American law, you know, with the Jewish law. Okay, so again, the the question is, and there's two examples here. One is the case of um, uh, the the Sotheby's case that we mentioned, which was a case in 1984 where Sotheby's actually was auctioning off this. Um, a range of, of uh, books from this reform institution, this institute in uh, the seminary in Berlin. That was the case in 1984. Again, in that case, I also, like I said, Sotheby's won the case. They ended up um, performing the auction. But there are many, as we mentioned, many other hundreds of cases 
that have been litigated about this, and even as we mentioned last week, current litigation is still going on. So, um, so we'll start with the, the one of the first issues is, in, as far as many times we discussed this concept in the past, when it comes to legal issues, and you're contrasting Jewish and Western law, there's a concept within Jewish law called Dina de Malchuta Dina. That means the law of the kingdom, the law of the land, many times, specifically when it comes to monetary matters, will override um, the, the Jewish law. Not override, but Jewish law recognizes when you live in a land, you have to keep the laws of that land. So many times when it comes to certain monetary matters, they're going to be um, there's going to be uh, um, not an override. I don't like using the term override. Because technically speaking, if Jewish law and um, um, contradicts non-Jewish law, uh, you, of course Jewish law technically wins out. Jewish law recognizes when you're living in a foreign land, especially when it comes to monetary um, disputes, obviously the law of uh, his level, the law of the land, um, we can't keep our own law. I'm not going to say we have our own uh, different laws. If it's a dispute between two Jews, that might be a different matter. They can agree, just like any mediation or uh, a situation like that. They can agree to arbitration where they're agreeing to go with what the rabbinic court says. But when it comes to, if you're fighting, uh, if it's a dispute between two parties that don't agree to the Jewish law, then of course, the law of the land at the end of the day is going to win, and in all cases. Um, now, as far as what I understand, there's a key aspect. Uh, first of all, there's one thing that exists in Western law that doesn't exist in Jewish law, which is statute of limitations. So even though we're talking about many, uh, you know, many years after the Holocaust, over 70 years, there, there's still um, the concept of a statute of limitations exists in Western law that there's no such concept in Jewish law. If you have something that's mine, it could be uh, 300 years later, or if I'm a heir, I can prove that I'm a heir to that item. Um, so there's no question I have a right to that, it belongs to me, whether, no matter how many years have gone by. As far as that's concerned, statute of limitations is irrelevant to Jewish law, that's one contrast. The second thing is one of the most important aspects, as I understand, in Western law when it comes to this question of um, materials that were stolen in past and someone buying quote-unquote stolen goods is the question of have, did the person, did the buyer act in good faith? Did the buyer do his due diligence and did he know what he, what he was buying was something um, that was stolen? in the past. Okay, and this is the key aspect. Many of the litigation, much of the litigation that took place in these cases were based on this, and this one that I mentioned the last week, was in the news last week about this LA judge. Also, he, he said it was based on, I believe he says here, according, he's going with Spanish law again, even though the, the ruling took place in the United States, was that there was the museum in Spain bought it on good faith, and therefore they have a right to keep, to keep the armor. Brown, we need another chair. Another chair? Oh, you do. Could be an RSVP list. Or a safe zone. Something. Okay, so, um, come on down. You snooze, you lose. You're late. You're late. It's okay. You're going to get home. You only get food. No fried chicken. That's okay. How about a nine water? Come to this side. Is this a big room there? I can go into the right here if that's okay with you. Sure. So, um, so as we can see, so that's number two. Number two is um, it's a question of the what? Okay, number two is uh, did the person? The, the question becomes did the person act in good faith? Okay, and um, that's a key aspect as we're going to see in Western law. That is much more limited when it comes to Jewish law. The question of whether the person acting in good faith or not is much less relevant as we're going to see. And the, the third thing as we're going to see within Western law, it's all or nothing. If the person, if the parties, the buyers acted in good faith in Western law, that's it. They win the case and they get everything. There's no compensation whatsoever for the original people who lost their um, who lost their um, their items. Um, and if they didn't act in good faith, then everything goes back to the original person, and the buyer loses whatever money was invested um, in that art or whatever else was stolen. Okay, um, as we're going to see in Jewish law, there's somewhat of a compromise, and it's and somewhat different. Okay, so um, what else can I get? Fruit. Uh, uh, Passed 
Okay, so, so the first concept, I'm going to introduce some Talmudic concepts here and then we'll go from there. The first concept is known as a concept called Yosh literally means, um, literally means despair. Okay, and that's a basic concept. There's a law in the Torah, a biblical law, which states very clearly that uh, we don't believe in the concept of finders, keepers, losers, readers. That's a American thing they teach you in grade school, but we don't. Uh, we don't. Believe, the Torah doesn't believe in it. The Torah says very clearly: if you find a lost object, you have an obligation to return to its rightful owner. Okay. So if you find something, you're walking in the street and you find the Rolex watch. Okay. Talk about that. It doesn't have to be a bad example, but you find the Rolex watch. You have to try at least attempt, according to biblical law, according to Torah, to find its rightful owner. Uh, but the Torah says an exception. Uh, the Talmud discusses if you know the person gave up uh, is in total despair and he gave up hope of ever finding his object again so then the assumption is then you can then you can keep it okay that's called Yish so the, 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 the Yish is applicable initially the Torah discusses it in the context of a lost object so again so you find something so the Talmud differentiates if that object has identifiable sign on it the assumption is the person didn't give up hope of finding so if it's his wallet and has his initials or um, whatever it else it might be that has a clear identifiable sign where the person can then come and, and present evidence that it belongs to him even without a receipt but identify the lost object so then the assumption is he wasn't what's called miyayish he didn't, he didn't despair of ever finding it and then you have to go and try to find the owner you have to put a you know, uh, put it up on Facebook, put it in the newspaper, whatever it is, depending on, on how uh, tech-savvy you are. Send out a what, you know, hang up a sign in the shul, okay, and say, I found this object. If you come and identify it, if you lost this object, please call this number. Okay, that's, now, again, if there's no identifiable factor on the object, says the Talmud, then the assumption is the person gave up hope of ever finding it. So, for example, it's a $100 bill. Okay, unless the person, unless you put an identifying factor in your hundred dollar bill, usually most people they lose cash. You're never going to find it again. You drop your cash in a in in a, in a public place. We're talking about obviously in a public place. You're not going to find it again, and therefore you gave up. You despaired of of, of finding it, and that now gives the finder the right to keep it because there is no owner. It's now ownerless. So it's called hefker in, in Talmudic terms, and is ownerless. That object notes meaning if you find it and it has an owner, that means the owner didn't despair of finding it. You have to go and return, try to find the rightful owner. If you don't, so that's a different question. How long do you have to keep it? We have in my house, my wife has a closet of uh, scarves and uh, many other uh, jackets and different things that people have left there over the years. One second, let me finish okay. my point. That people have left over the years and um, you have to keep it until someone comes and claims it. You can't use it. Okay, you can't uh, because someone might remember they came to our house for Shabbat dinner. This is Torah. It's not weird. Torah is weird though, sometimes. Um, but why is it weird? Meaning someone might come and, and claim it. You have no right to give like it away. Put it out on if your it's court. again, you can't, you can't put it out on the street and hope they come back and get it themselves. <laughs> no, it's like you have you have an obligation. You're liable if it gets damaged. If someone else comes and steals it, and now the guy comes and claims it, it's your liability. Because you have an, you have a biblical obligation to return the lost object to its rightful owner. Again, if it has no visible outward signs, it can't be identifiable. There's nothing unique about it. Then you can just throw it out if you like. But if it, it's a unique item, you have an obligation to return. Okay, so again, cash. If someone drops cash in my house, it's in my pocket. That's it. It's over. And there's no uh, question. Okay, um, that's a donation. It's tax deductible. Right? What if it's a large <laughs> item and you don't have room to store it in your house? Do you have to no, save you don't money? Have to store it in your house. Oh, so that's a good you mean question. Like if I left my cow. <laughs> right, so it's a good question. Meaning, do I have to lay out money to keep? Let's say it's a, it's <laughs> something that's really a pet. That right, it's a pet. Do I have to feed the animal while I'm keeping it? So so that the Gemara discusses. You, technically, you lay out the money, but when the person comes to claim it, you can ask him back for the. You can be remunerated for you. Just tied up the <laughs> Okay, so that's a that's a good point. So what if you encounter you find a large, I mean a truly large sum of money, cash, a hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars. So again, if it's in a purse that's identifiable, if it's set up, for example, Thomas discussed, let's say you have coins that are piled up in a certain way, where it's identifiable, then then technically the assumption is the person did not despair of finding it again. But if if it's just lazily, you know, it's it's spinning around in the in the street, 
and there's no way to identify it, it clearly dropped out of someone's pocket or the back of the truck, then you can keep it. It's packaged in So again, if it's packaged in a way that's identifiable, for example, banks, when it falls off the back of a Brinks truck, they're identifiable because they're wrapped in a certain way there. They also have that impact that explodes in your face. Don't try that at home. And then they, they also have uh, serial numbers. They're, banks, they're identifiable because they're, they're packaged in their serial in their order. Okay, many times. So that's identifiable. But anything less than that, the assumption is you can keep it. Something like that? Okay. So now that's the concept of Yush. Um, now there is a question, what's called Yush, that there is an argument in Talmud, whether someone despaired where they had no idea that they lost it yet. Can you assume? Meaning, let's say they, this person dropped their wallet in HEB, and, uh, but they might not even know until they get to the check account, until they get home, that they even lost it. So can I can I own it? Can I pick it up and own it? Where they don't even know that they even lost it yet. So that's a that's an argument. Um, that's an argument between two opinions in the Talmud, um, where it's called Yish Shalomidas. That means despair without the person even knowing he lost. He, he's despairing yet. But the assumption is again, if there's no identifiable signs, then the person's despaired. Then you now it's ownerless and you can own it. So so the question would be. Um, and this is a very important question, we'll get back to that, but during the Holocaust, when, when Jews were leaving, they were being deported to the camps from Germany and Poland, Hungary, wherever they were going from, can we assume that they despaired of ever coming back and retrieving their items? So the case in point is, where I would argue that point, is my uncle, who clearly, and he's not the only one, many Jews went ahead and hid their stuff. Clearly they thought they'll be able to come back and retrieve it after the war. Many Jews, as we know, didn't know that they were going to be killed. They thought they're going on an extended vacation somewhere. Um, or they didn't, even people in Auschwitz, as we know, in the showers, they told them it was showers. They didn't tell them they were being gassed. So many people, till the very end, did not realize. Um, and the question was, at which point do we assume that they despaired of their items or not? So that would be one applicable question here. How we view um, um, Holocaust, not so I wouldn't say survivors, but those items that the people left at being deported, did they realize that they're never going to see them again and therefore despair that they're ever going to, that they're going to ever retrieve them or not? So that would be question number one. Um, and, and, and then it would be applicable, let's say, to this guy or to the, many of the cases that uh, museums that now have these items, they're not considered ownerless. If the person leaving their home where they stole the art from them, the Nazis looted the art from, assume that eventually they'll be able to retrieve it, so then the museum would have no right to it, technically speaking, because they're, they're not ownerless. The heirs of those, either the survivors, existing survivors, or the heirs would be the proper owners of, the, of that looted art and other items. Okay, does that make sense so far? Now, if you, if you find something in a public domain, Yes. And uh, do you still have the the halachic obligation to try and locate the owner for it? In other words, yeah, can you leave it and walk away? away? Can you just oh, say? No. So the Torah says very clearly. Uh, it says, uh, uh, "Can you say I don't, no. I don't feel like No, no. The Torah says very clearly. It's interesting. The Torah says, "You shall not hide your eye from it." I am Hashem. And the Rashi explains it. What does he say? I am Hashem. Obviously, it doesn't say that after every mitzvah. So the point is, it always says, God says, it puts it in the Torah. I am God after every mitzvah where no one's going to know. You know, sometimes you see a guy in HB, you drop, something falls out of his wallet, and you, you know, you're now you're rushing to class, rushing to work, so you don't want to deal with it. So you make believe you didn't see it. You know, you, you see it out of the corner of your eye. Or many, or whatever. We're privy to many cases like that, right? So you, you make believe you haven't seen it. Says the Torah, do not hide your eye from it. God knows whether you saw it or not, and He's going to know whether you're late to work, and, and that's why He says, "I am God," meaning I know what's going through your mind. Right? You're late to work, and you want to say, "I'm not going to deal with this." So the halach is that's it's it's a negative commandment. You have a positive. It's actually two commandments associated with returning lost object. One is is you have, you have an obligation, a shave to shave. You have to return it to its rightful owner. The second commandment is do not hide your eye from it. That means if you didn't, if you just left it there, and you say, "I'm late to work." So then you violate a negative commandment of don't, don't uh, hide your eye from the lost town. Because it's understood, most people don't want to deal with it. It's true. Um, today, the truth is with social media, it's, it actually uh, makes life simpler. You just post it on your Facebook, you know, and you have 3,000 friends, and again, the word gets out. Eventually, someone's going you know, you found a dog, cat, whatever it is. So it makes life easier. Social media does make life easier in that sense. But again, but, uh, not to sound racist, I'm being recorded here. Um, so okay, uh, but, um, but there is the halach is really the obligation is specifically a fellow Jew's item 
of the assumption is you're living in a Jewish community. If you live in a community, even that's mostly non-Jews, um, you have no obligation. Again, you could do it. It's a nice thing, but it's 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 then a good deed. It's not obligatory. The, the obligation is to a fellow Jew, which find that throughout the Torah, many laws, as we discussed, it's not a racist issue. It's just that uh, family, uh, like uh, the the obligation to family, is always much more than the obligation to a stranger. So we should look at the whole Jewish nation as, as family. So if you find something in Ben-Gurion Airport, that would be a problem. If you find something in IAH, the assumption is the majority of people are non-Jews passing through, and therefore you don't have to deal with it. Technically. If you live in Maryland and, and you're in uh, Belden's, that might be a different story. And you might, then you have to figure out if the majority of Jews, non-Jews. So again, that's, that's really the halacha. Since it's a family, I can say statement like that. Um, okay, so so that's one aspect, Yish, uh, which is very relevant. We'll get back to that towards the end. Um, now there's another aspect, which even might might even be a better application than Yish, because Yish, what we're saying is, it depends. You have to get into the psychology of the person. You have to figure out if that person despair of his lost item or looted item in this case or not. Right, so that depends on the psychology, and you need to figure that out. There is what's called there's an objective Yish that we're saying. Uh, is that we understand most people would despair in this case, and therefore that's the assumption if it has no identifiable factors. So that's, uh, again, in, in legal jargon, I guess, would be called a working assumption or ordinary, ordinary person. Yeah. Right. As opposed to now, for example, now let's say even if there's no identifiable factors, but this guy's standing there and he's saying, he's telling his friend, or he posted on Facebook, I lost my $100. So we know he didn't despair. He's saying, I need to find it. Um, so in a case where he says, the, the Talmud says, where he's screaming and saying, I still want to find my lost object, even though under normal circumstances, the ordinary person would despair of this item because it's unidentifiable. But if you know he didn't give up, of course, then the assumption you have to go with what's clear. So again, it's really about the psychology of the, <coughs> I want to call him the loser, but the one who lost the uh, object. Okay, now there's another, but the Talmud mentions another thing, an exception to this rule, which is called Zuto Shayam, very relevant to the living in Houston, to flooding. It says, let's say where the guy was on the beach, and a wave comes in and takes away his wallet. He's laying on the beach, sunning, and then his wallet's next to him, his cell phone, and then a wave comes and sweeps it away. Okay, or it says if a riverbank, if a riverbank overflows, the bank overflows, someone's house floods, and there's stuff floating down Brazewood. Okay, so in that case, it says, says the Talmud, everyone would agree you can take it, you can pick up the object. Even if the guy's sitting and screaming, I want it, and he's trying to chase it down, praise him. Because that's a case where it's lost to all men. It's totally lost. Um, no, no one can, technically can ever retrieve it. You happen to be a crazy guy who has his water skis and go and chase it down Brazewood or in your canoe, in your motorized boat. But most people, once it's floating outside their home, there's no way they're going to... They, they, there's, there's two ways to understand it. Actually, there's two opinions in the commentaries explaining how to understand what's called Zuta Shayam, which is number three on the sheet here, which means it's swept away by rising waters. Once it's, so then there's a verse, one says... That that's a clear case of view. There's no one, any sane, normal person would despair in that case. Okay, would despair, he's never going to see his items again if it's washed away at the ocean. You know, it might show up on the other side of the Gulf of Mexico, somewhere in Cancun, I don't know which side is Cancun, is west side or the east side, whatever, west coast, but someone will find it in Cancun. But the person here in Houston who lost it in Galveston, he's, it's gone, he's never going to, and therefore when you find it in Cancun, you have a right to keep it. In that case, says the Talmud. Everyone would agree to that case. Um, now, the, so it's working with the same criteria of despair, as opposed to other opinions say no. It's a special. It's actually learned. The Talmud brings a verse in the Laws of Lost Objects, which says it's lost um, where another man will find it. But in a case where there's no one, it's lost to all men, says the Talmud. In that case, it's very clear in the Torah that's a loss. Then you can keep it. There's no. It's ownerless in that situation. So again, the, the question would be, what happens if the guy is, is standing on the beach and he's screaming and he's crying, he wants his wallet back, and he's trying to hire a guy on, on jet skis to go and retrieve it. So can you keep it or not? But almost all agree in the case, in the case of where it's washed away by a riverbank or in the ocean, that you can keep it. Now some want to say, um, in the case where a raiding army or where the Nazis come in and looted homes, that's the same thing as Zuta Shayam. There, there was actually a response from World War I, prior to the Holocaust, um, by the Imre Yosher, his name, uh, his name, and he discussed, they discussed about an invading army during World War I that took away uh, looted people's homes. Um, I don't know which army, I don't remember which army it was. 
And uh, he says that's the same thing. He applies this same principle of Zuta Shayam. It's like an article swept away by the sea. Mm-hmm. If an army comes, you don't agree? Yeah, I don't like that. Well, what type of law do you practice? Uh, I do litigation work. I do okay. consultancy. So why don't you like? Why don't you? Well, if if they know what's going on in terms of a war and people are being rounded up, then how can they assume that they can take it? No, he's he's not saying. He's, not, he's saying the, the army took it. Right now, years later, it resurfaces. That item. Do I have to return that item to its rightful owner, to its original owner or not? That's the question that was posed to him. It's three years after World War One. Now uh, I may not pawn shop and there's someone selling this this Rolex watch that was stolen from from that I know it ha- you know has the guy's name written on the back. Do I have to return to its rightful owner? That was the question that was posed to the rabbi and he said he apply this principle, it's like this, when a raiding army comes in and takes something away, it's just like the ocean took it away, and therefore it's ownerless. You can assume, even though it has the guy's name on the back of the watch, he says that's ownerless, and you, have, you do not have to return it to its original owners. Because they clearly, at that point, it's, it's no, you know, there's no chance of anyone retrieving it. When the government comes in and takes stuff, it's but like the IRS. But it's better to be a man like and return it if you know how Oh, so we'll get to that. Yeah. We're going to get to that. Yes. Is there no duty like due diligence where you, sh- you know No, he's saying it's irrelevant. It's ownerless. Yeah, what he's saying is, just as if you find that. something on a beach, he's saying that washed up from the other side, you know, a uh, note in a bottle right. happens to have money in it, so you don't have to go and find the owners. The assumption is... The person, when someone, when something's washed up and you see, it's ownerless at this point. That's what the town would say. Right. And he's applying that principle to a marauding army. To, uh, if I'm pronouncing that camaraderie, marauding. Um, so, so he's saying that that principle is applicable to an army too. That's what this guy uh, wrote. Uh, this is after World War One. Yeah. There's a bit of a disconnect here. On the one hand, it's it's the owner who has despaired and not identified it in the first group of discussion. Yes. Yes. And in this second group, it's the despair comes from uh, throwing up your hands and saying, I'm never going to be able to get it again, mm-hmm. even though I want it and I went to the trouble of identifying it and mm-hmm. I did all the right things. And then there's the the third layer that goes on top of that, that that basically would suggest that that it isn't just nature that swept it away like in in a flood, but even man-made problems can sweep it away. Uh, That's a a whole different layer. Floods in Houston are man-made. Well, I mean, you you can stretch everything, but we usually think of proximate causes (laughs) as being pretty close. Okay, but it is a valid point you're making. So so I did see someone does make a distinction. One one could go to the next level and say, well, it, it was burgled and stolen and Therefore, uh, I've despaired because I don't think the cops only solve one percent of the burglaries, and and okay, properly, and I'll never see it again. So you're right. If but, we but know I, that, I really want it, and I'm I'm going from pawn shop to pawn shop looking look, for it. Right. Uh, where, where is that? Yes, so, so I, I agree. I, listen, I understand. I, I, someone, I did say someone did see someone makes that distinction that you're making between man-made and natural, natural disappearance, like a flood, something is natural, and man-made. Someone does argue on that response, but this original response that was written again after World War One, he's saying it's a cycle. We know all of this is in a certain sense. There's, there's two parts to it, as you're saying. The first part of years, despair means we really have to get into the head of the person who lost it and figure out his psychological state. Did he give it up? Or did he give up his ownership or not? That's in the first stage. In the second stage, when it comes to the, the water sweeping away, he's assuming somehow maybe there's, there's a little bit of both. One is, you know, psychologically, if the sea sweeps your thing away, it's gone forever. That's the normal person's way of thinking. She's a normal man way of thinking and therefore we have to assume like that there's another aspect of just the fact is and if you're never going to see it again it's impossible it's a miracle and you know someone will swoop down with a drone and take it out of the high seas yes but in, no- in normal circumstances you're never going to see it again and it's the same thing with an army again like I said even so the question becomes let's say even the IRS IRS takes your money you're not seeing it again 
Right. So if the government takes your money, in any, in any case, which is interesting, because there was a case, just to address your point, there was a case in Israel in 1954, that I read here, um, similar case where someone was suing, um, came to a rabbinical court, suing the, uh, I don't know who, it was again, it was a museum in Jerusalem that, was, that had something on display, it's actually a Torah crown. And this guy claimed it was his family's from Hungary and before the war. And uh, so the, so the uh, rabbinical court there, someone, a rabbi named Rabbi Yashem, said that it's very different. In that case, actually, it was the, it was the Hungarian, it was the local government that took, that confiscated the stuff. And he made a difference between whether it's a foreign army confiscating it or a local government. He says, the uh, foreign army, that's like Zuta Shayan. It's like the sea coming in, you're never going to see it again. The Nazis came in and they looted, except in Germany, maybe you can make a distinction. When they went into other places, came into Poland, uh, France, wherever they else, Austria. So that was a foreign army looting. He says, that case is comparable, that's the case where it's comparable to the sea sweeping it out to sea, or the ocean sweeping out to sea. But he says, if it's a local government, People think, you know, they could fight the guy. They'll maybe, when the new person's elected, the next government, they'll, they'll maybe be able to get it back. And he makes that distinction, and therefore he says the, the person had a right to get back his Torah crown in that case. So, in your scenario, Which is my scenario. or an example, whatever these great works of arts and the Nazis or the whatever foreign government, however, confiscated them, and later the family's able the heirs are able to trace their lineage and their ownership interests. If we apply the laws, you've just said it, do, does the family, do the heirs have any right to so, the... So that's what we're saying. We're saying according to these laws, um, once, if you can prove, and that's the question here, and we'll get back to that, but that the original families that owned it just had total despair of ever seeing it again, then the people who got it down the line, even if good faith or not good faith, can keep it because there was, it was ownerless. Once, in Jewish laws, what we're saying is once we know the original owner of that item <coughs> had the spear of ever finding it again, then it's ownerless and therefore the new people who acquire it can keep it. But doesn't that... That's what we're saying. But we're going to get to what should you do, what's the right thing to do. But well, not so much the right thing, but my problem with it is it seems to me that it encourages really harsh conduct. Uh, by an occupying power or a greater force to take things in such a manner that the owner will despair. That well, well, I don't think that's what the Nazis. The Nazis were thinking they're going to kill the Jews. They no, no, no. The Jews left. Of course. I don't think we're encouraging uh, th these people don't need encouragement. <laughs> they're doing their job. Well, that's a, that's a valid point <laughs> yeah. that, that they don't need encouragement. Um, right, so I guess I, don't I just know if that don't would like be the idea that if you can trace yeah, it, that. Not, uh, that um, it's not a nice You don't have a claim. Yes. I think the I think part of the problem is the word choice of despair, and obviously I don't know Hebrew. Yes. But but the whole notion of despair, uh, you know, if if it's your money or your life, and you choose your life, uh, you gave the money up as as a desperate measure in despair. Uh, not because uh, you despaired of, of those funds, but because you chose in a desperate you say it was situation. Under you say it was under duress. It's, it's exactly. So if they raid your house and they say, you know, uh, if, if you would like to live, leave, leave the art and get, get your butt out of here. Uh, that that's that's duress and despair, but but you certainly yes. never intended or wanted or gave up on your art. You just had to run. Okay, so we get this is a good point, but I can tell you, listen, I grew up in Brooklyn, <coughs> and from my experience, I've been uh, my back was stolen many times by knife point, gun point, had many bags stolen over my uh, my years, and they, you never you know you know you're never going to see it again, like you said. Well, you, you know, you, I was meaning the fact that it was under duress th doesn't change the psychological factor. I'm never going to see this back again. You know, I really gave it up after a while. It's just you know, I knew I got a new bike in every six months. You know, living in Brooklyn, so it's you you but you you. It doesn't change, change the psychological aspect. I, in my mind, 
I'm never going to see that again, and therefore I'm relinquishing my ownership, so to speak, in a certain well, sense. I, I think that's Listen, true. Listen, sometimes when I got older, I tried to chase the guy around a little bit. I think that's true. Piece something. of art. In his example, you've got okay. the, the so only the piece of art. You've got right. the only one made by this guy. Right. It's easily so identifiable, so? and it was yours. So I'm going to get, once you brought I'm going to get back to your point in a second. We'll get back to it. I just want to say, so I, what I just mentioned, I was looking for it in my notes, but it's actually I put it on the sheet. Number five was this case in 1945, decision of the Rabbinical Court of Jerusalem, silver Torah crown seized by Hungarian fascists from private parties. So this was after World War II. Hungarian fascists um, took this Torah crown from a private party in, in Hungary. It ended up in a museum in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The court asserted that the titles asserted by conquest only in the course of war against a foreign country, not on your own citizens. That's what I was pointing out before. So there's a difference in saying this concept of applying the, the article swept away by rising sea, he the court there applied it only, it was a rabbinical court, not a civil court, applied it only to a foreign conquest as opposed to a, of a foreign country as opposed to your local government because I, I didn't see the case. I'm assuming it's because Again, psychologically, in your own government, you think you can fight. It's a foreign army. Yeah. There's no way, uh, you know, yeah. you think you can fight. Now, so Hello. Alan, can I hear you? Okay, so um, so get I'm going to skip six for a second. We'll go back to it. But the last thing is beautiful. This is saying a, a working, again, because it's dependent on psychology, on, on the psychology of the person who lost the item, so there's a, most of the response, and there are many responses after World War II, after the Holocaust, written on this topic, and they all say the assumption is people despaired. Listen, six million Jews died. The assumption is they, they all, when they're, as you said, when they're running away from their life, they weren't thinking about, you know, their silver in their homes or their money. Um, um, although, again, like I said, my uncle um, literally hid his stuff, and there were hundreds of people who hid their stuff before leaving. So clearly they assume that at some point they're going to come back. So that's one question. But he views it from the uh, philosophical, uh, Jewish philosophical perspective, which is a beautiful thing. He says, uh, number seven, so um, this is an article from Rabbi Bleich, who's a, a law professor actually in Yahweh, somewhere in New York. Um, and he, he writes, he brings these responses, and he's, he disagrees with most of the responses. He says like this, number seven. He says, Rabbi Bleich disagrees with Rabbi Isaac Liebes, Another contemporary authority regard, regarding whether, as a matter of Jewish law, one should generally conclude that Jews caught up in the Holocaust experienced Yush as to Hebrew manuscripts and other art that was stolen. Yush again means despair. The following words of Rabbi Black serve as an apt testimony to the courage and faith of many of the members of the Holocaust genera generation whose lives, as well as whose art, was so ruthlessly despoiled. So he writes like this. He says, um, the next paragraph, he says, in such, the, the original response says, quote, in such a state, if they are ready to spare their lives, that they know not most certainly despair of their property, to whom, it would to whom would it occur to think thoughts of his house or fortune were under the nails of the angel of death, the impure or foul oppressive, is translated from the Hebrew, in the death camps and in the ghettos, end quote. So Rabbi Black writes like this, Professor Black, he writes, despite its ringing eloquence, this argument is less than compelling. The, the diabolical designs of the Nazis are now a matter of historical record. But whether or not they were recognized at the time by the intended victims is an entirely different matter. The historical record indicates that the Germans did everything possible to conceal their malevolent, malevolent intentions from both the victims and the world at large. Moreover, he says, and this is a fascinating point, he says, moreover, there's a certain, certainly every reason to assume that even in the darkest hours of the Holocaust, the oppressed victims hoped and prayed for the defeat of the Germans at the hands of the Allies, and hence had reason to anticipate that the property would eventually be reclaimed by them or their heirs. Furthermore, even had the nefarious final solution been announced to the intended victims, Yish would not have ensued, meaning despair. Yish is a psychological phenomenon, and it is unthinkable that Jews of the Holocaust generation would have been so lacking in faith as to believe that in violation of his covenant with Israel, God would permit the annihilation of the entire Jewish community. Hence, the unfortunate victims would certainly have clung to their belief that the plundered books would ultimately find their way into Jewish hands. Indeed, that belief has been confirmed by history. As we know, there are many books that have and art that have made it back to Jewish hands. If you go to Israel and many museums, and literally thousands of pieces of art and Jewish books that have come back into Jewish hands after the Holocaust. Some of them are in other places, true, in Austria, and some of them in Oxford. There's museums all over the world that have these, but, but uh, he's saying is, as a Jew, we don't give up so easily. Jews don't give up so easily, even under the knife. And therefore, under the gun in this case, and therefore, he's saying, it's not that we don't know for sure that they disappeared. So 
it's uh, just a, a nice uh, way of viewing it. I don't know if it's a legal view, but he's saying again, the, the idea of Yush is we need to get into the psychology of the people that lost it. And Jews don't, didn't necessarily give it up so quickly. <laughs> how, did, how, did, okay. how does this apply to the uh, homes and real estate that the Jews owned that was taken from them and given to uh, It the wasn't boy? given, I think. It was just uh, people just moved in. And Which like I said, many yeah. people came back and they got killed over their properties. Right. Most of the people, it was they knocked on the door and then the people who were living there came out and killed them. It's hundreds of such cases. And that's why, again, this week the, um, the saying the that's why Poland is trying to hide all these atrocities by saying, you know, okay, it wasn't a Polish Holocaust. We were victims as well. As a matter of fact, this week in Poland, they, the president of Poland, this week, if you look it up in the news, you Google it, um, announced that there would be no reparations for anything that was stolen, um, even by the, Pol by the Polish government mm -hmm. during the war, because they're trying to hide the Poles, as, they, as anyone who, any Polish family can tell you, was much worse than the Germans. And they were eagerly and gleefully part of the of the atrocities that took place, killing Jews on their own and giving up, uh, and again, taking properties, stealing properties. They were very happy to get rid of the Jews. Um, so the, that's why they're so... They're, have, they're have people trying to revise in history. the World Court or the UN against Poland? I, I don't know. I don't know personally of any cases, but um, it's something that's being fought within Poland because there's a big yeah. backlash of... I mean, you know, Poland had, the, I don't know, three, something like uh, three million Jews. Um, right. were living in Poland. Most of the Jews that were killed in the Holocaust were Polish Jews, so they lost the most. Um, three million Jews, a lot of property, a lot of wealth that was given up there. So they have to fight it, or else they, you know, they could be losing yeah. a lot of... Um, besides for what Mitzner owned, what bought back, and then, uh, Mr. Mitzner Sr., what was his name? He always claimed there's a guy in town who was a survivor. No, his father. Um, what was his name? David? David Mitzner, so he said that was his biggest revenge. He was, he, uh, when the government of Poland, when they went, uh, communi communism fell in 1977, like Polenza came and went. He flew back, he was the first person to be there who spoke Polish, foreign investor, and he bought up, he bought up literally millions of dollars. He owned uh, most of downtown Warsaw. He said that was his biggest revenge. He owned the Poles afterwards. And uh, he, he bought the real estate. Yeah, he bought, he, owned, he had a Marriott, he had many hotels there, and basically he said that was my biggest satisfaction, his revenge, is he owned uh, most of, uh, you know, downtown Warsaw. Um, it's much later, but that's one way to, to get it back. Um, so, okay, so this is one thing. I just want to finish off here. So the few going back to number six. So someone asked, wouldn't be the right thing to give it back anyway? So there's no question there's a concept in Jewish law that says even though there's a kind there's an interesting thing in Jewish law, it's something called the Flimisher Tadim. Um, literally, in, in English, we translate it as beyond the letter of the law. There's law, and then what, what sometimes we, we, we uh, do, you signed in? Bar no, I'm gonna, no, I'm saying your bar number. No, I'm going to uh, send make okay. a call on the, okay. no, the tab from your candy. So Don't the number sure that that means beyond the letter of the law. What does that mean? So normally we, we understand that in, in, in Western laws, you do, you know, it's a nice thing. You want to go beyond the letter of the law, you're not obligated. In Judaism, it's actually, if you translate even the words, beyond the letter of law, it doesn't, it's not translated. The words in Hebrew are lefnimisher that then, which literally means within the scope, scope of the law. That means really, as Jews, our job is to do like the, the highest, the highest the level. Law. No, it's more than that. It's the highest, as Jews, our job is to what's called to be Bale Hasadim. We're supposed to do uh, kindness and be kind people and do the right thing always, whether it's the law or not. Sometimes there's a, the minimum, the law is always the minimum in, in Judaism. That means the law, it tells you this is the minimum that you have to do. But, but the obligation is really to do the highest level of morality. So therefore it's not beyond the letter of the law within Judaism. It's um, literally the words would be, like I was saying, within the scope of the law. That means, again, we can't obligate you, although there are some cases, even things that are beyond the letter of the law, that we say it, it becomes an obligation. So here in the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law says very clearly, in a case where, let's say, you find a lost object that doesn't have identifiable signs, and the assumption is you can keep it, and the person who was in despair, it still says, let's make sure that you should go and return it to the rightful owner. It still should go. If you find out the dollars, 
um, in, the, in HEB, you should go and try to find, even though technically speaking, legally speaking, you have no obligation to return it, according to Jewish law, but it says you should still go ahead and do it. It's it's beyond the scope, within the scope of the law. So if you've bought the fine art from exactly. it, and you think, and you've paid for it, and you think that due diligence has been done, and, and that you can take it, and then the heirs come forward. Right. So technically speaking, we're saying you're not obligated but the right thing to do would be to give it back. The right thing would be to give it back, yes. Now this requirement, what's interesting, is much of the cases that were discussed, much of the litigation, were cases where it was non-Jewish museums. So they don't have this obligation. It's only as a Jew. We have an obligation to be to go beyond the letter of the law. They don't have that obligation. So in those cases, it wouldn't be applicable necessarily if you're fighting a museum or something like that. Where but they do have a, the, I think the art, they, haven't they developed laws of a certain yes, process again, of due diligence do, where they yeah. really have provenance? Again, what we're saying is even in that case, you still would be obligated to go. Right, right. So that's Robert, what happens to the knowledge of the law? In other words, if there are so many Jews who are, are not aware of halakha. Okay, so now, so, so that's that last very important thing. Um, and I just want to mention, so there's, there's a few, let's, you know, two more minutes, I'll finish up. That there is a compromise in a certain sense. The Jewish law does also discuss, the Code of Jewish Law discusses that when you bought something, um, even in good faith, uh, and then it turns out it was stolen goods, but you did your due diligence and you bought in good faith, so technically you had a right to it, according to Jewish law. Um, it says that there is a form of a compromise. That means you still would have to return the amount you paid for it would still have to go back to the original owners. You still have to compensate the original owners. That's the compromise, meaning... Um, what order did the original owners get to pay you what you paid? What? You paid for it. You were a good faith purchaser. You did your due diligence. You paid a million bucks. Break for owner comes up. The question is, should they have to pay you a million dollars to get it back, or do you give them some additional compensation? You're saying yes. So what I'm saying is, let me, let, me make, let me make clear. I'm a little confused myself. So I'm <laughs> make sure I'm saying the right thing. Um, the, the case is, talking about where there was, where there was no yish. Okay, so I meaning if there's yish, if there's despair, then it rightfully belongs. What I'm saying is, in the case where you did your due diligence, and you ascertained uh, that it wasn't stolen goods, but there, but there, there was no despair. I mean, technically it still belongs to the original owners, but you have a right to it. So according to the law of the land, at least, because you did, you 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 did, you bought it in good faith. So in that situation, what the Allah says is a compromise. Um, that uh, the Western law, as far as I know, again, I don't know much about the American law, but much of Western law will say if you bought it in good faith, you have a right to it. You can keep it. Um, someone told me American law is different, but I don't know. Um, what Allah is saying, Jewish law is saying, is it's sort of a compromise situation. The person does have to compensate you for whatever price originally he paid originally for, paid for. Yeah. but not for the, uh, you know, it went up in value, especially yeah, with art, uh, especially with art, looted art now what was stolen in Germany, you know, it could have been worth a thousand dollars at the time, now it's worth three million. Okay, so he, he gets to keep the value, the added value. So that's the compromise situation that, from what I understand the Jewish law. You don't like it. You could. The guy only gets a thousand dollars, the original owner gets a thousand bucks. He gets for what it was worth at nice the time, it was, uh, it was, no. Not, not what no, the original word. The the whatever it was the bought, the price that it, this person bought it at, he has to compensate. So you have been listening to the MP3 project from the Jewish Ethics Institute. For a complete selection of our lectures, please visit our website at j-ethics.org. Shalom.